The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Well, uh, if you want to open your Bibles, if you're not already there, to John chapter 6. Uh, we're going to be spending our time there this morning, taking, uh, taking on most of that chapter, also a good chunk of that chapter. We are starting a, a new series at the moment that's going to be a series that we'll start and then stop and come back to uh, throughout this year called I Am, I Am. We're looking at these seven I Am statements from Jesus that, were, that are scattered throughout John's Gospel. There's all these times uh, throughout John's Gospel where Jesus uses this phrase, I am, to describe himself. And today we're looking at this statement in verse, 60, uh, sorry, verse 35 where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Uh, these I am statements are really, really important on, on a couple of different levels. On one level, Jesus is using them, he's given a special insight into his own self-disclosure. He, he's saying, this is who I am. And so logically, if you want to know who Jesus is, then this would be a good place to start. These I am statements form a crucial part of that. On another level, Jesus is making a claim of divinity. When God himself first made his name known to mankind after the fall, he introduced himself to Moses with the name, I am. And so when Jesus uses this phrase, I am, and he begins a sentence with the words, I am, and then finishes that sentence, he's both making a claim of divinity as well as revealing to us something very important about who he is. And, and the whole point of this isn't that we would just get a little bit more, more information about Jesus. It's that we would glorify him and praise him as God. Charles Spurgeon said, The highest praise of God is to declare what he is. We can invent nothing which would magnify the Lord. We can never extol him better than by repeating his name or describing his character. If Jesus describes himself as the bread of life, then it's inappropriate for us to do anything less than to consume him, to, to, to eat his words, to take them deep into our hearts and fully into our souls. If Jesus says, I am the bread of life, it's inappropriate to say, well, that's nice. Well, that's interesting. We must take him at his word. And so the point of the series then is for us to know Jesus better, to take him at his word and then glorify him and praise him for who he is. So we're looking at uh, John chapter 6 verses 22 to 44 this morning, roughly that area of, of text. We're going to go a little bit beyond that and the, te- the passage, the, the chapter is quite large. We won't get into it in heaps of detail. Um, but I want to do, what I want to do is break that passage there into two sections. The first section is in verses 25 to 35, and we could sum up the, the, big, the main point of that section by saying, you can't come to God on your own terms. And then we could sum up the, the second section by saying, you don't want to come to God on your own terms. We can't come to God on our own terms, and, and when we understand who Jesus is and, and the way he, he asks us to, to follow him, we wouldn't want to do it our way. It's best for us to do it his way. And so we're going to read the, the whole of that section there, the first section, and then we'll pray, and then we'll take a bit of a look. 
to read from verse 25. It says, When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. What can we do to perform the works of God, they asked. Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. What sign then are you going to do so that we may see and believe you, they asked. What are you going to perform? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, just as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. Let's ask God's help on this passage. Father, we come to your word knowing full well that the, those who delight in your instruction, those who, do, who meditate on your word day and night, they are the blessed ones, Lord the ones who, who come to you, who come to your word and, and hear and understand it, Lord, we ask, Father, that as we spend this time in your word, that you would nourish us with your word, that you would uh, prepare, you have prepared this for us, Lord, but you would prepare this as it enters our hearts, Lord, and that we would see and, and savor you, Lord, that we would truly see and believe that you are the one who has the words of eternal life. So thank you, Lord, for the great gift of your word. We, we ask for your help, Holy Spirit, as we read it to open the eyes of our hearts for this, Father. Amen. Well, it's the, it's the first of January. It's the first, it's the first day of the year. And I don't know about you, and this is, just kind of, this is just kind of anecdotal, but I've found over the past few years that the whole notion of... Uh, New Year's, New Year's resolutions is kind of getting a little bit less done. Like, I, I don't know, it's, it's just something that I'm not sure if you've picked up on this, maybe it's just me, but I've, I'm finding that less and less people are asking me for my New Year's resolutions. Now, that might be because in the past I've never actually fulfilled them, so they've stopped actually asking, but it might be because the last few years have kind of taught us a thing or two about what it means to, to set goals and, and whether or not we can actually achieve them. If you cast your mind back three years ago today, 1st of January 2020, I'm not sure if you remember, that year was brimming with promise, right? Like organizations left, right, and center were, were casting these vision statements. This is who we are and appropriating the, the name 2020 into their vision statement to express clarity. And we did too. We, we, everybody did. It was like, yes, this is going to be the year of whatever it was. And then, just a few weeks before Easter, COVID came and we all learned the very valuable lesson, if we hadn't learned it yet, that we truly are not actually in control of our circumstances. And then, for a lot of people, 2021 was meant to be the year that waved 2020 goodbye and we were going to get back to normal. And that didn't happen. 
And it actually, for a lot of people, including myself, 2021 was a lot harder than 2020. And then for a lot of people, again, 2022 was going to be the year that, hey, we're going we're gonna to leave all this behind. We're going to come back to normal. And that might have happened for a lot of people. But I know for others, 2022 was just as hard, if not harder, than the last few years. And so it's probably worth asking as we reflect on the last few years and we think about this next year to come, it's probably worth asking a couple of questions at this juncture. What would happen to your relationship with Jesus if it all came true? Like if, if your goals and your aspirations and your, your hopes and your dreams, they all, for 2023, what if they all came true? How would that affect your relationship with Jesus? And the second question is, what would happen to your relationship with Jesus if none of it came true? What would, what, would be, what would your relationship with Jesus be like if you reached the end of this year in one year's time and you were further away from your goals? It seemed like bigger obstacles had been set up in, your play, in place. Would you assume then, maybe God stopped loving me? Maybe his patience is worn out. Maybe he's, he's punishing me for that thing that I did way back when. The reason why I ask this is because in our passage today, there are a bunch of people who are denied their hopes and dreams. They, they come to Jesus expecting him to fulfill their expectations, to tick the boxes they've created, and to submit his will to theirs. He is the butler, we are the ones in charge, and we have come to make sure that he does his job, and Jesus doesn't, and as a result, lots of people abandon him. And the reason why is because they were coming to Jesus on their own terms, they had a list of demands, a list of things they wanted Jesus to do for them, to bend his will under theirs, but he doesn't. He doesn't provide it for them. He doesn't grant their requests. And the vast majority of people who were there at the beginning of chapter 6, at the end of chapter 6, even some of those who were called his disciples, leave him and abandon him. Now, the background to this is what Holly read out a few moments ago. Uh, Jesus miraculously feeding the, the 5,000 men. And uh, there was also 5,000, most likely 5,000 women there, as well as women and, and sorry, as, well, as, well, as well as children. So we're talking easily 12,000, maybe 15, maybe even more than that, 15,000 people. Jesus miraculously fed them with a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. And the people, and it was, it was, a, it was a miraculous meal. It was, it was a meal that came out of nowhere. It was a big meal. The people were full afterwards. They were absolutely stuffed. It was a tasty meal. If Jesus turned the water into wine and it was the best wine ever, we are, I think we can safely assume that this is the best bread ever, the best fish ever. It was a big meal. It was a miraculous meal. It was a tasty meal. And best of all, it was a free meal. And the people were so impressed that they wanted to make Jesus their king then and there. Maybe this is the prophet who is to come. Now, this is not to say that they were all hoping that he would be the king of their hearts. They just wanted to get him in government. He was a politician. He could get him there and, and he could actually serve us then. And sensing this, Jesus uh, retreated from the crowd and then later on that night slipped off across the Sea of Galilee at night without being noticed. And this is when he, he walks on the water. And the next day, the people realized 
the guy who fed us is gone. And so they weren't searching for Jesus. They were trying to find Jesus. And if I could sum up the discourse that happened here, they wanted more bread. They were hungry. They wanted breakfast. But Jesus wasn't going to give it to them. He wasn't going to give them yesterday's bread anyway. So they ask, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus picks up, the, picks up on their motives. They just want lunch. They want some more food. He calls them on it. He says, you're only looking for me because you want more food. You had yesterday's bread. You had heaps yesterday. And now you're hungry again. You shouldn't be seeking that kind of food, the kind of food that perishes. You should instead be seeking the kind of food that God gives, the kind of food that lasts forever. And so they ask, well, what do we have to do to get, what do we have to do for God to get that bread? And Jesus answers, you need to believe the one that God has sent. He's talking about himself there, and they actually, they know this. And they ask, well, what are you going to perform for us? What sign are you going to do? Why should we believe in you? What, like, we, we, what are your credentials? We, we saw the, the miraculous sign you did yesterday by pr- providing bread for everybody. Are you better than Moses? Uh, they're referring to this, the time back in the, in the desert when the, when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness and God provided bread, uh, manna, bread from heaven to God's people every day, millions of them every day for 40 years. And they're saying, we saw that miracle yesterday. Are you going to be better than Moses? Are you going to give us this bread every day? Like if, if you want us to believe in you, are you going to give us this bread every day? And Jesus replies, his reply is great. He says, firstly, that bread wasn't from Moses. That bread was from God. Secondly, that wasn't the true bread from heaven. That was just manna on the ground. The true bread from heaven is the one who came from heaven to give life to the world. The true bread from heaven isn't pastry. It's not bread. It's a person. Well, give us this bread always, they say. We'll take it. And then this is where Jesus delivers that all-important line, I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty. Can you see the the difference between what the, the kind of bread that Jesus was willing to give and the kind of bread that they wanted? Can you see how they were wanting to come to Jesus on their own terms? They had a list of demands they wanted them met. They were even willing to go all the way across the Sea of Galilee. It wasn't a short journey. They were fervent about following Jesus because Jesus could give them what they wanted, bread, food, water. It's kind of like someone going to a job interview. and You're hoping to get this job, but you go with a big list of demands for your potential future employer. I want, I want my own office. I want a company car. I want flexible hours. I want, want to be able to work from home. I want to travel. I want all these kinds of things. It just doesn't work like that. And it's the same with Jesus. We, we can't come to, to Jesus expecting him to be like our servant or our butler that we've got this list of demands. Like, if I'm going to follow you, Jesus, then these things need to be met. Maybe you've made a deal like that with God in the past. Lord, I'll follow you so long as this this need of mine is met. I'll follow you so long as this other thing happens. I'll follow you so long as I have financial stability. 
I'll follow you so long as everything in my life works out how I've planned it. We can't come to Jesus on our own terms. I uh, met up with a guy a few years ago, and he had, a couple of years before that, had gone through a pretty nasty divorce. And I think I've shared this, uh, this story before, and he, we, we were talking about it, and he said, I, don't, I just don't get it. I held up my end of the deal. I did, I did everything that God wanted me to do. I, me and my girlfriend, we, we, we were Christians. We, we didn't sleep with one another before marriage. We, we saved ourselves and we, we, you know, I, we went to church and we served and we tithed and we, we did everything that we're meant to do. And now this is what God's given to me. Like, I deserve better than this. He had, at some point in his life, made some kind of deal with God. I've come to, and he's come to God on his own terms. He had come really seeking yesterday's bread. I want, I want I, I, Jesus, I don't really want you. I, I kind of just want the things that you can give for me, that you can give to me. And Jesus' message is this. If all you're after is yesterday's bread, you're going to get hungry again. You're going to get thirsty again. But if you come to me, you'll never be hungry again, and you'll never be thirsty again. And what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's pointing to a deeper need that they have. A problem underneath the problem of an empty stomach. It's a problem that sin has created for us. Sin has separated us from God in a way that we cannot fix it. And that problem there is far deeper than even the needs of hunger and thirst. And Jesus is saying, you wanted bread for an empty stomach, but don't you know that there's bread available for your empty souls? I am that bread. The greatest, pro- greatest problem that each of us face is the sin that we are born into and the sin, and the sin that we are guilty of. And I don't say that lightly. I know, I know that there are other big problems that we've got in our lives, family problems, money problems, relational problems, work problems. I don't say that lightly or flippantly, but underneath all of those problems, the, the most significant problem that we have is the sin that has separated us from God. And our greatest need, then, is to have that sin removed from us. The reason why is because sin deserves death. The wages of sin is death. It's that serious. And we need more than short-term solutions like bread. We need atonement. We need to have our sins permanently removed from us and for us to be permanently reconciled back to God as we were created to be. And this is why Jesus points to himself as the true bread, because he is the one who can actually reconcile. He is the one who can actually make atonement. He came as the atonement. He died in our place so that we wouldn't have to. He died as our substitute, dying the death that we deserve because of our sin. And the way that we get the true bread, the way that we get the eternal life that he, that he offers is by believing in him, as he says. Believing in the one that God has sent. Believing in him when he says, sin is a far bigger problem to you than hunger and thirst. And believing in him when he says, I am the one to solve that for you. This is an important distinction. This is the great problem for the crowd. It's not that they were against Jesus taking away their sins. They probably would have loved that too. But they had needs then and there. 
And they were only interested in Jesus as far as he could guarantee a remedy for the problems that they faced, for their immediate needs. They were coming to Jesus on their own terms. You see, the thing is, we can't come to Jesus with a a list of expectations that we have for him, a list of problems that we intend for him to solve before we will sign on the dotted line, before we will follow him. He simply doesn't work like that. He doesn't submit his will and intentions to our will and intentions because his will and intentions and agenda is far better than ours. His will, what he wants for us, is far better for ours. If you're here and you're not a Christian, oh, sorry, before I say that, consider the fact that God gave them bread, sorry, Jesus gave them bread one day and then didn't give them bread the next. It was his will to feed them the day before. He wanted to feed them the day before. They didn't actually ask for it. They were just hungry. They were just there. He offered it to them. And he did that because that authenticated him as the one who came down from heaven. And he could have fed them the next day. It wasn't too hard for him. But he didn't. And that wasn't because he couldn't be bothered or because he was punishing them for something. It was because his will for them the next day was to not feed them because that would wean them off their dependence on earthly things for a dependence on spiritual things. You see, Jesus didn't come to us just with good news. He came to us as the good news. Jesus didn't come to us just with bread. He came to us as the bread. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I would love for you to consider following Jesus, but you need to have it clarified for you that that following him doesn't mean that all of your immediate problems are going to be solved overnight. God loves you and cares for you too much to do that. He cares for you too much to submit his perfect will and agenda to our imperfect and shoddy wills and agendas. If we, look, if we look at the year ahead, we can make plans, we can, have, we can make goals, we can have resolutions. But for some of us, I dare say some of us here in this room, 2023 might be the hardest year of our lives. We might be looking, we have no idea, we might be looking down the barrel of an incredibly difficult year. But don't assume that that's because, that that's at all that God doesn't love you or that God has abandoned you. It might be that this is the year where he weans you and I off earthly things, making us less dependent on temporary things and making us more dependent on eternal things, on the bread that lasts forever. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the the, the brave opponent to, to the Nazi regime in Germany, he wrote a poem for New Year's Day, and he called it New Year 1945. So obviously he wrote it just before that. And in the middle, in the middle of the poem, he, in the fourth and fifth stanza, he, stum, he sums all of this up so well. In the fourth stanza, he says, Should it be ours to drain the cup of grieving, even to the dregs of pain at thy command, we will not falter, thankfully receiving all that is given by thy loving hand. This year could be horrible. We might drink the cup of grief dry at God's command. But as Christians, we never followed Jesus so that we could have a good year. We followed Jesus because he has the words of eternal life. 
The fifth stanza says, But should it be thy will once more to release us to life's enjoyments and its good sunshine, that we've learned from sorrow shall increase us and all our life be dedicated as thine. Even if, as he says, this year all her dreams come true. As believers, as God's people, we'll continue to gratefully dedicate our lives to following him. Bonhoeffer died that year. He was hanged on April 9th, 1945 by the Nazis. 1945 was a fourth stanza year for Bonhoeffer. He, he drank the cup of grief dry. He was 39 years old and the, the SS doctor who witnessed his death later recalled, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Friends, Jesus is not the kind of king who will bend his will to ours. He loves us way too much for that. We can't follow him saying, Lord, I'll follow you so long as, because that's a horrible precedent to follow the king of life. This first section teaches us that we can't come to Jesus on our own terms. And then as we read Jesus' words beyond verse 35, we... It, it becomes clear that if we really understand what kind of king Jesus really is, we wouldn't want to come to him on anything but his terms. So reading from verse 36, Jesus says, But as I told you, you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those that he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Therefore, the Jews started grumbling about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Okay, so there's a lot in that passage right there. It seems quite heavy, and, and the repetition and the overlapping of the words and the sentences kind of makes it feel like we're trying to untangle Christmas lights that have been shoved recklessly into, the, into a box last year. Like, you know that feeling, you're like, you read this, you're like, where's the start? It's kind of, it feels like it's gone in circles a little bit. But it's not reckless. His words have a really important point. And if we can humble ourselves for a moment under our king's words, I think we're going to say... Oh wow, why would I not want to, to come to why would I want to come to Jesus on anything but his terms? You see, when we come to Jesus on our own terms, we're effectively taking our salvation into our own hands. We're saying, I know what's best for me, and so I know exactly who Jesus needs to be for me because that's what I need in my life, because I'm the one who's in charge. But that always ends in disaster. If we come to Jesus, though, on his terms, we're leaving salvation in his hands. And that means eternal life for us is guaranteed because he is the one who is doing it. 
You see, if you and I were to, to write up, let's say there's a, there's a deal for salvation, eternal life in Jesus Christ, and you and I were to write up the, the terms and conditions for doing that, for, for getting that, it would be a shocker. We would have these really strict conditions for who gets it because we apply those conditions to ourselves, to our hearts all the time. We'd make it way too easy to lose our salvation because we so often, so often think, oh, maybe I've gone too far. And we'd all of us find ourselves failing to meet even our own requirements. But the terms and conditions that Jesus outlines here are grace. Grace means unmerited favor. And grace is precisely the, the way that God wants us to come to Jesus. Not trying to dress ourselves up and make ourselves really good candidates for salvation as if we can earn that somehow. Not trying to, to put in our best and, and try and prove to God that we've got a lot to offer him so he should, he should choose us, he should save us. To come to God by grace is to say, I've got nothing going for me. I've got nothing to give. I've got nothing to offer. And if it weren't for you, Lord, I would have no hope of having eternal life. That's what it means to come to Jesus by grace. His terms and conditions are loaded with grace. And there's a few things here that he says that help us understand that. First thing is that God's grace is perfectly planned. Jesus says in verse 37, everyone the Father gives me will come to me. That implies that there is a specific number of people that God has given to Jesus for him to save. Given to Jesus. Keep that in mind. Like God, the Father, has handed the elect to his Son to save. A gift that Jesus wants. God, in his infinite love and mercy and compassion, has resolved to not leave all of mankind in their sin, but has chosen to save some as a means of bringing glory to himself. And before we ask the question, we don't know why God chooses some and not others. We don't know that. The best answer we have comes from God himself who says, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It is his perfect wisdom operating in his perfect sovereignty. And it is a means of wonder and awe that God would save anyone who has rebelled against him in sin like we have. If you believe in Jesus, if you have been saved from your sins, then that reality, which is the truest reality about you, that reality was decided by the triune God before the creation of the world. And the reason why that's good news for us is because if that was left up to us, we would never have decided that. Jesus said in verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. According to Jesus, if it wasn't for, God's, for God electing to save us, we would never be saved. So isn't it far more preferable then that God doesn't leave that up to us, but actually takes that decision into, upon himself? God's grace is perfectly planned. The second thing is that God's grace is irresistible in its sweetness. Looking again at verse 37, Jesus says, Everyone the Father gives me will come to me. 
When God opens our eyes to see the beauty of God's grace in Jesus, we will find him to be more wonderful and sweeter than anything else on earth, and we will respond to him by coming to him. The sweetness of his grace towards us shatters our stubbornness towards him. You see, sin has turned our worship in on our ego and made us the center of our worship, the center of the world. But God the Spirit opens our eyes to the futility of worshiping anything other than Jesus and towards the sweetness of worshiping only Jesus Christ. And this doesn't mean that we don't have free will. The Bible affirms both God's sovereignty and the free will of mankind. And that's a, that's a mystery, but the two, are toge- the two are together. To quote Charles Spurgeon, again, when asked if he could reconcile these two truths, God's sovereignty and mankind's free will, those two truths, how could you reconcile those to each other? He replied, I wouldn't even try. I never reconcile friends. When the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to the beauty and the treasure of Jesus Christ in the gospel, our wills finally become free to actually choose God and to turn away from our sin. God's grace is irresistible in its sweetness. The third thing is that God's grace is forever. Again, in verse 37, Jesus says, Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. And then he says in verse 39, the will of God is that I should lose none of those he has given me, but I should raise them up, but should raise them up on the last day. This means that our future is absolutely secure in Jesus. And he is the one who holds, because he is the one who holds onto us. I mean, this is the image that came to my mind. Imagine we're floating in the ocean, we need to be rescued. Jesus comes out on a helicopter and he his hero on the winch and he comes down and he grabs us and he pulls us up to the helicopter. He doesn't then put our hands on the bar underneath the helicopter, leaving us dangling there and says, I hope you can hold on and flies away. No, he is the one who holds on to us. He is the one who holds on to us. If we were to choose between us holding on to God or God holding on to us, we would be fools not to choose the latter. There's so much assurance in this. We might ask, but what if I'm a really bad sinner? What if I've done some really bad stuff? What if there's some stuff in my past that nobody knows about? Jesus says, I will not cast you out. We could ask, but what if I'm struggling with sin? What if there's a sin area in my life? I know it's sin and I repent of it all the time, but I keep falling back into that, into that black hole of it. Jesus says, I won't lose you. I'm not going to lose you. I'll hold, I'll hold on to you, and I will raise you up on the last day. Can you see why Jesus points to himself as the true bread? Why Jesus is so much better than anything else? And the message here is to drop the terms and conditions that we might have put on ourselves for following Jesus. Maybe in the back of your mind you've made a deal with God. God, I'll follow you. Jesus, I'll follow you so long as. Like maybe there's a threshold for suffering in your mind that, that you aren't willing to cross. Like there's a, <clears throat> there's a thing that as soon as that no longer exists in your life, 
that's it, that's the, that's the line, that, that's done. Then, I'm, then I'll stop following Jesus. Friends, it's time to drop it. To stop working for the food that perishes. For the stuff that, oh, oh this world that entices us. It, it, we've got to come to Jesus humbly, seeking the inter- eternal life that only he can give. How do we do that? How do we get that? By believing in him. By consuming his words with the same vigor that we would consume good food as hungry people. And there's heaps more in this chapter we could discuss, but it actually ends quite sadly. Many people desert Jesus. At the beginning of the chapter, there's Jesus and his, his 12, and then there's an extended group of disciples, and then there's the, the 10 to 12, maybe 15,000 people who are all around him. That's at the beginning of chapter 6. By the end of chapter 6, it's just Jesus and the 12. And he even highlights one of you as a devil, talking about Jesus. Someone who, Judas, someone who would come to Jesus on his own terms. He saw in Jesus a means of making himself rich. And so Jesus looks at his disciples and he asks, aren't you guys going to desert me too? A lot of people have deserted him because he didn't give them bread. Some of those who were called his disciples even left him because the teaching was too hard. And Jesus says to the the guys there, hey, aren't you guys going to leave me as well? And we see in Peter's response a picture of what it looks like to truly come to Jesus on his terms. Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. Why would we eat anything else when eternal life is on hand? I read in my devotion this morning, Psalm 1. Blessed are those who delight in the Lord's instruction and meditate on it day and night. What if this was the year that we really feasted on the words of Jesus Christ? What if this was the year that we were really nourished on, on the eternal life that comes from Jesus Christ alone? What if this was the year that we, <clears throat> that, <clears throat> excuse me, what if this was the year that is the year that God weans us off earthly things and onto the eternal food of Jesus Christ? What if this was the year that our appetites for Jesus became massive and the appetites for, this thing, for the things of this world would diminish? That is a work that the Holy Spirit does in our hearts. So let's ask him now to do that in our hearts now. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others. But please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.